somewhere this morning, maybe even on this island, a cluster of excited children huddles in the back of the church. Tea towels on their heads, palms in their hands, hosannas on their lips, a donkey draped in coats under the careful supervision of their Sunday school teacher. The energy is building. We are stepping and moving ever more swiftly to the exuberance of Easter. Palm Sunday is a joyful acclamation of the arrival of our Lord. Our gospel reading this morning invites exuberance, for the world is radically altered. It demands our allegiance to a kingdom that is nothing like what we know and see and experience around us. It reverses expectations, and it demands that we do the same. Luke's telling is distinctive. Gone are the palms, which have given the church's festival its positive title. Gone are the cries of Hosanna, which populate our best-loved hymns for today. In their place, Luke confronts us with human power hunger's dark underbelly and reaches a vital turning point in his endeavor to shift our loyalties into total self-renouncing allegiance to the one whose cosmic power reveals itself precisely in self-giving, suffering love. It is precisely in this tension between worldly power lust and Christ-like self-giving that we face the challenge of this text to our allegiances today. Luke's Jesus will not let us have divided loyalties. Throughout the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has been challenging his disciples with a stark division between those for and against his ministry. Just before the first announcement that he had set his face to go to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples not to stop an exorcist, quote, for whoever is not against you is for you. He claims that whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And he promises to acknowledge or deny people based on whether they have acknowledged or denied him. This kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is one that people cannot half inhabit. A choice must be made. The kingdom that casts down the mighty from their thrones and that lifts up the lowly is drawing ever nearer as Jesus moves closer to Jerusalem. And now, as we turn the final corner in the journey, Luke's account sets our choice in stark relief. Two kings stand back to back in the story. Uniquely among the Gospels, immediately prior to telling the entry story, Luke has Jesus tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear in view. Jesus tells the story of a throne claimant who goes off to gather royal power for himself. The figure is vividly unscrupulous in his business dealings. 
enthusiastically rewarding those who returned extortionate levels of profit and scorning the level of interest available from the money lenders. He embraces the attribution harsh, using a term that in the words of one commentator conveys, quote, that he ignores conventional piety in his quest for power and possessions. Most tellingly, he demands that those who opposed his kingship be executed before he comes. This parable, like so many in Luke, is open-ended. It teases the mind into active thought, as you will recognize from the and may work by forcing us to work out whether we can recognize the kind of king that Jesus is and the kind of king that Jesus isn't. I would suggest that as Luke tells it, we are supposed to entertain this parable perhaps less as an image of what Jesus commands and more as a stark contrast with the reality of his reign. If Luke's audience is aware of the political history of Judea, and there are a lot of historical and political markers in Luke, then it is virtually impossible to imagine that they heard this story of a noble going off to ask to be made king, a group of objectors following him, and the king executing those who objected without thinking of Herod's brutal son of Archelaus was infamous for the slaughter of about 3,000 worshippers at Passover, a detail that was used in protest against his plea to be made king. Incidentally, when Jesus is traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, as Luke places this parable, he and his traveling companions would be walking down a road with what has been described as, quote, an impressive view of Herod's palace at Jericho which was rebuilt after his death by, you guessed it, Archelaus. There are, of course, enough points of comparison to make the contrast work. As Vincent points out, both Jesus and the parables thrown claimant are made king. Both give their servants authority, and both go away and come back to judge. However, these similarities throw the reality of the contrast between them into sharper relief and force us to work out the details and differences. So, in his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus vividly evokes a contrast between his own rule and the rule of an infamous bloodthirsty tyrant who incidentally wasn't quite made king. Jesus' kingdom is one that casts down the mighty from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. It fills the hungry with good things, and it sends the rich away empty. It is explicitly a reign of peace and goodwill, one in which his followers are instructed to lend, expecting nothing in return, and to love their enemies. Most tellingly, Jesus' attitude to power here is precisely the opposite of the grasping power of Herod and his family. While they kill to maintain power, Jesus knowingly walks towards his own death, weeping over the future of the city, and his distinctive majesty resounds all the louder in his humble approach. Jesus' entry into the city in Luke is a kind of coronation scene. We are invited to see Jesus explicitly as a royal figure here 
the coat, the garments, the procession up to the temple, and especially the disciples' words all point to this. And yet, the way Luke tells this story, right on the heels of this contrast with the times, invites us to see a very special sort of kingship. The kind of kingship Luke has been preparing us for ever since Gabriel made the announcement to Mary. She was told that he would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. And she responds to the announcement with the hymn that inaugurates a vision of what that reign would be. One in which the oppressions of this world are overturned in God's generous, mighty mercy. As they acclaim their king and he's entered to the city, Jesus' disciples echo, their words echo those of the angelic choir at his birth, proclaiming both glory and peace. So right and fitting is this acclamation that Jesus acknowledges, acknowledges the celebration as irreversible. So what does all of this have to do with us? And particularly with that theme of undivided loyalty in Luke. Very interesting theory about Luke suggests that the high literary references of the gospel point to an author who had benefited from and likely been a member of the Roman elite. In order for such a person to pen the gospel, which most dramatically inverts social hierarchies in the ministry of Jesus, a significant revolution in his own life would have to have taken place. Kuhn thinks not only had the author of Luke gone through such a personal revolution, but that he aimed to convince other social elites, maybe even including Theophilus, to, quote, join him in leaving behind the kingdom of Rome with all of its privileges, trappings, and inequities to seek another radically different realm and to align themselves with another crowd and a much greater elite. While such a theory would have to remain speculative, I share it with you because of the resonance between that audience and us. Whether we like to admit it or not, we are among the privileged of our time. We have benefited from the systems of our day. We have access to clean water, reliable transportation, modern medicine, and education. We have choices that millions of people in our world can scarcely dream of. And if the events of the past month and a half have taught us anything, it is that our societies, our comforts, and our privileges are deeply invested in global power dynamics. We have watched as our leaders have struggled to determine how to maintain our standard of living in the face of military aggression from one whose raw materials quite literally fuel our labor. We have witnessed the struggle to find ways to cut our impact on the environment and the inevitable sacrifices that no group wishes to make to achieve such goals as carbon reduction. And yet, we are not the primary victims of the systems we find ourselves inextricably implicated in. We have seen vivid images of bloodshed and displacement as refugees flee a war that we know European comforts fund 
despite our outrage and our frustration. Like those who might well have been Luke's audience, we reach Jesus' majestic entry into Jerusalem, having been <coughs> repeatedly invited to follow the one who demands that his followers take up their cross daily, who invites people who follow to give up their homes, who reminds us that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. We see the rich man who goes away sad, for he had many possessions. And we see Zacchaeus, who demonstrates what having salvation visit your house looks like when he repays more than necessary, renouncing wealth for the sake of the we are brought to a point of decision on this journey. Which kingdom do we choose? Do we serve the tyrant and follow the ways of greed and power hunger? Will we give in to the temptation to seek delegated power from those who wield influence? Or do we just quietly acquiesce to the way things are? Or will we, as our epistle reading voices, let the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. What would it look like today to embrace the radical reign of God in our world? To join the crowd of disciples as they joyfully proclaim, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest heaven. What sacrifices does an unfettered allegiance to the Prince of Peace demand? Might it mean praying for the benefit of others, even when that benefit may cost us? <coughs> Might it mean letting go of some of our material comforts when we know we have them at the expense of others? As we walk into Jerusalem with the Prince of Peace today, joyful acclamation of his reign is a decision. The decision to give our allegiance to the kingdom of God means wholehearted commitment. It requires rejecting self-interest, greed, and pride, surely included among what the baptismal vows call all proud rebellion against God and the deceit and corruption we will. It means recognizing the claim of the servant king to be the only ruler who can truly bring justice and righteousness. The things that tempt us away, the sneaky desire to hold on to just a little bit of power because we know we would use it for good, or so we tell ourselves. The deceptive mental arithmetic that tells us the choices we are making are the best we can do, even when we know deep down we are running on self-interest at the expense of others. These we must cast aside if we 
will wholeheartedly throw our garments down on the road before the King of the universe. We can see for ourselves daily the impact of self-interest and greed, pride and hunger for power. We know what happens when leaders follow the inevitably destructive road of self-interest. Jesus himself is the better way. Jesus is the only way. We will give allegiance to someone. To ourselves, maybe. To an economic system. To a dream of a way of life. But we are made by God for one allegiance. The one rightful ruler of our hearts is the one who calls us by name, who leads us with compassion, who goes so far as to lay down his own life. The contrast of Luke's gospel sets our choice into sharp relief. Choosing to hail Jesus as our king is hard, not least because it means that we cannot be the kings and queens of our own lives. It is hard, but it is what we are made for, and it is inevitably good and right and joyful. The good news is that our king is not like the world's king. Jesus weeps over suffering, even the suffering of those who reject him. Jesus seeks out the lost, bids his followers to love their enemies, and lives obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the king we acclaim today, a king like no other a king whose followers must live his journey of self-sacrifice must learn what it is to love your neighbor as yourself and to take every cross daily. Luke's gospel invites us to face the hard question. To which kingdom, to which king are we leaning on?